Tonight's scripture is from Luke chapter 3, verses 7 through 18. And he said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning God, or concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. This is the word of the Lord. This is the second week that we have been studying uh, John's sermon uh, on repentance, John's Advent sermon. And as we talked about last week, we assume this is the kind of sermon he would have preached as he ministered in the Jordan, as he prepared the people of God to encounter Messiah, to to be ready to to receive Messiah as their Lord and Savior. I thought we'd just take a moment and identify, you know, some of the main themes of John's preaching. I mean, what do you notice when you hear this read? What did you notice last week as we looked at it? Judgment is certainly a major theme in John's preaching. He, he begins with a, by calling his audience a bunch of snakes um, who will be burned as they flee God's wrath. He says anyone who does not respond will wind up being burned like a cut-off branch. He says that if his listeners are trusting in their relationship with Abraham to save them, they will be burned at the end. He says that Jesus will come and separate the chaff from the wheat and burn the chaff at the end. So judgment is clearly uh, one of his themes. Repentance is, is another major emphasis, and he, he calls the people of God to repent and bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And then he gives three illustrations of what that repentance looks like. He tells the crowd that if they have two tunics, they're to give one away. And, and remember, these are people that were on the margins of poverty, and a tunic was not a, an extra garment. It was one that they needed for survival. And so he's telling people that are on 
near poverty to move even closer to poverty to share with uh, those who are even poorer than they are. And then he tells the tax collectors to just collect what they were owed. Now, uh, tax collecting was an institutionalized extortion system, and the tax collectors' bosses were essentially a mafia bosses, and they were ordered to collect more than they were owed. And so if they did not do that, they would either lose their jobs or worse. So this is a radical uh, command, a radical statement of what it looks like to follow God's law in the industry of tax collection. And then he tells the Roman soldiers to stop oppressing people with their fear and intimidation. And of course, that was how the Roman Empire did its thing, was fear and intimidation. So he doesn't tell them to leave. He tells them that within the structure of the Roman army, they're to do it with justice and fairness and decency, which, of course, no Roman soldier would have ever thought of doing it that way. So he lays out these incredible standards of what it looks like to obey God. And essentially, John's sermon does two things. He tells them how God wants them to live. He preaches the law. This is what it looks like to obey God in these circumstances. And then he warns them of the judgment that will come upon them when they fail, or should they fail. Now, do you notice anything that's missing? Is there anything in John's gospel or at least John's preaching, I don't know if we'd call it gospel, that's not there. Well, I think you do. One of the things you notice is that John doesn't have much to say at all about the power of the gospel to transform a person and give them the ability to obey God's law. And John also doesn't have much to say about how it is we're forgiven of our sins and how the work of the Messiah on the cross will bring that about. And this is because John doesn't know. John does not yet understand the fullness of the gospel. He can't. He is the last prophet of the Old Covenant. And so the full hope of the new covenant has not been revealed yet to him. Jesus has a very interesting thing to say about John in Matthew 11. He says, John is the greatest man, essentially, of the old covenant. And then he says, but the least person in the kingdom of heaven will be greater than John. Now, why? It's because if you are in the new covenant, if you're baptized in the Spirit, in relationship with God, through Christ's work, by the Holy Spirit, you have new covenant resources that John could only dream about. John was a great old covenant prophet, but even the least member of the new covenant knows more of the gospel than he did. And Martin Luther, the monk who started the Protestant Reformation, put it like this. He said, John the Baptist preaches the law, 
to prepare the people for the gospel. One writer uh, put it like this, a more recent writer, um, if we have a slide there. John comes on like the last great prophet of the Hebrew scriptures and like a walking, breathing law of God, full of doom and holiness and ultimacy. John is the law of God in person. Jesus is the gospel of God in person. Then Martin Luther uh, put it like this. John the Baptist was to accuse them all and convince them that they were sinners in order that they might know how they stood before God and recognize themselves as lost men. In this way, they were to be prepared to receive grace from the Lord and to expect and accept from him the repentance of sins. See, the law prepares us to receive the gospel. Romans 3.20, through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law convicts us of our sin, shows us our need for Christ, but the law cannot give us the power to obey. And John seems to understand this. When, when they ask him, oh, are you the Messiah? He points into the new covenant. He looks over the chasm. He looks at the Messiah and he says, no, I'm not. But one is coming who will baptize with the spirit and with fire. And what he's doing there is saying that the fulfillment of Ezekiel 36 is about to happen through the ministry of Jesus Christ. John knew Ezekiel 36 Every Jew, every Jew knew, every Jewish prophet knew this prophecy, and it, it's this right here. God says to Israel, 600 or so years before Jesus, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So John the Baptist is looking at Jesus and looking at the end of the old covenant and saying the one who is coming is ushering in a new way of following God. And it will be by the Spirit and from a new heart. So the law is good. The law prepares us for the gospel. The law prepares us for grace. The law prepares us for the Spirit. The law prepares us for Jesus. But the law cannot save us. The law cannot give us power to obey God. Now, the New Testament spends a lot of time teaching believers how to live under the New Covenant. And there are two errors that the New Testament writers, particularly Paul, uh, address about life in the New Covenant. And the first error that they made, and I think we make, 
The first error is to think that if we live in the new covenant, if Jesus has really come, if Ezekiel has really been fulfilled, if we live by the Spirit now, if we live by grace now, then we don't really need the law at all. Uh, the law is just for the old covenant. Or worse, the law is a bad thing. We don't need it at all. And the, the fancy name for this is antinomianism. Uh, and sometimes it creeps into Christians' lives where they think, you know, I just, I, I, I'm filled with the Spirit. It's all about love. I don't really, it doesn't really matter whether or not I live under the law. Well, Paul addresses this particularly in Romans chapter 7, in a, in a very elaborate argument. He says, yes, we are released from the law. When you use it as a way of salvation, it does bring death. But then he says, quote, the law, though, is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. I delight in the law of God in my inner being. So God's law remains a gift to the children of the new covenant. We should still love and revere God's law because it reveals to us how people filled with the Spirit and in love with God and living out of an abiding relationship with Christ live out their lives by faith. And so Psalm 119, that wonderful psalm about the law, applies as much to the new covenant Christian as the old covenant one. Here's just a short line. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his word, who seek him with their heart, who do no wrong, who walk in his ways. With my whole heart I seek you. Don't let me wander from your law. I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. You can pray that as much as an old covenant believer could. Do you love God's law? One of the ways we could ask that is, do you love his word? Do you love his word? Do you have a desire to study it, to read it, to shape your life by it, to meditate on it, to memorize it, to let it transform you? Do you love God's word? Or do you pick and choose from the Bible that fit your personal preferences and reject everything else? Well, there's a second error that we see in the New Testament in relationship to life under the New Covenant. And it's this. Some Christians go back to living under the Old Covenant. That's what the book of Galatians is about. These believers had understood the fullness of the gospel. They'd, quote, begun by the Spirit, but they'd gone back into what Paul calls the bondage of legalism. And that's what we call it today, legalism. Paul says, for freedom Christ set us free. Stand firm. Don't submit to the yoke of slavery. If you're led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And a lot of Paul's writing is devoted to helping believers live by the Spirit and not 
by the law. He tells the Roman Christians, we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Now, why does he hit this again and again? Why do we have the book of Hebrews? Why is so much of Romans about this? Why is Ephesians a little bit about this? Why is Galatians about this? Perhaps it is because human beings have a default setting to go back to works. We are hardwired to go back to the law. It, it's, just, it's just in us to live that way. There is something about John's old covenant preaching that we like. As perverse as it seems, we like the idea that we can repent, we can do good, and we can please God. And if you read John's preaching carefully, you you get hints of grace, whiffs of grace. But there's also a lot of workish-sounding stuff in there if you're not careful. And there's something about that that we like. We like this idea that if I get it right, God will bless me. That if I find the right method or the right group or the right model or the right guru, uh, the right dieting book, the right parenting uh, podcast, and I figure out the rules, everything will be okay. Work harder, try harder. But this puts so much pressure on us to perform. The cover story of the Atlantic magazine this month is titled The Silicon Valley Suicides. Why are so many kids killing themselves in Palo Alto? It's a very sobering article. It's about Gunn High School, G-U-N-N. It's one of the best in the nation, but it's earned the, the nickname The Suicide School. Last year, by March, 42 students had been hospitalized or treated for suicidal thoughts. Five had killed themselves. And after one of them had jumped in front of a train that runs near the school, which is the preferred way there, she posted a YouTube video, and she said, the amount of stress here is ridiculous. We feel the constant need to keep up with and achieve. And no, we won't join the debate team for you, Mom. And as the students in the article talked about the pressure they felt to get it right, to make life work, uh, to to figure out the success for the good life, Uh, these kids live in near Steve Jobs' house, Um, I kept thinking, you know, I've heard this conversation before. And then I realized I've heard it in my own head. And I've heard it in hundreds of conversations with Christians over the years in a slightly different fashion. This idea that somehow, if I work hard enough and perform, I'll find life. And instead it leads to suicide. And maybe that's what Paul meant when he said to the Corinthians that the Old Covenant has a ministry of death and the New Covenant has a ministry of life. 
Well, this morning I was working on this sermon. I went back to reread the Atlantic article online. And uh, this time they'd posted a response from a physician in Palo Alto who was part of the mental health community working on the situation there. The first thing that was interesting about the response letter was that it was remarkably empty of all feeling. And then the, the physician went on to detail all the things they were going to do to fix the problem. And that was the whole letter. And, and, and of course, that's a, you know, a noble thing, and I guess that's what she's paid to do. But I thought, what a picture of life under the law. <laughs> our kids have a terrible problem. Our, our kids are feeling so much pressure to work hard, they're killing themselves. And so we're going to work harder. We are the smartest and wealthiest people on the planet. Mark Zuckerberg lives in our neighborhood. We can find an app to fix this. And that is the American way. And I think that's how we approach God. We can find an app to fix this. And I wonder if the reason why so many Christians leave churches, and I know there's a lot of reasons for that, but I wonder if the reason why many Christians no longer are part, actively part of a, of, a, of a local faith community or have distanced themselves from a local faith community, I, I wonder if they're committing a kind of spiritual suicide. I wonder if somehow they're, they're hearing a John the Baptist kind of sermon, even from well-intentioned preachers like me, and they're just exhausted. And they just don't need another list of things to do and feel bad about. Are you living under an unbearable pressure to perform? A sense that you never quite get it right. Have you ever thought about committing spiritual suicide? Maybe you've slipped back under the old covenant. You know, lately I've been thinking a lot about the developmental stages in the spiritual life and how we move from one to the other, or at least are supposed to. And as I reflected on this passage, it occurred to me, maybe we could think of two stages. Stage one in spiritual development is law. And it seems like every Christian starts here, no matter how good your teaching is, we all kind of start with this idea that, okay, there are rules to keep, and that's how I'll be in right relationship with God, and it'll all work okay if I keep the rules. Stage two in spiritual development is gospel. It's grace. It's spirit. It's, it's Jesus. And theoretically, you should be able to read Galatians the day you're converted and somehow realize you don't need to spend any time in stage one. You can go right to stage two, but it rarely seems to happen that way. Instead, it seems that there needs to be a, a transformation in your life or a time of crisis in your life where you despair of living by the rules of religion. 
Paul talks about this in Romans 7. That's what He's very honest about it in Romans 7. He basically says, I came to a point when I just realized I could not keep the law. Now, here, here's my observation. I think at many, in many people's experience, they come to that crisis point where they get so frustrated with not being able to do all the things they're supposed to be doing and that it's not working and it's not turning out and God isn't making their life like they thought it would look like that they commit spiritual suicide. They get off the bus. They check out. When what God is actually doing at that point of despair, of frustration with the local church, with the elder board, with America, Christianity, with your own struggle with lust or covetousness or gossip, with the frustration of parenting your kids not turning out the way that you want to be, or with your marriage not being what you thought it would be, or with not being married like you thought you would be married, and you get to that point, and you just quit. Because it's not what you signed up for. It's not fair. You've done everything right, and this is the junk you're getting dealt. But I think what's really happening at that point is Romans 7. Is God is trying to take you from law to gospel. He's trying to move you from works to spirit. He's trying to take you beyond religion into relationship with Jesus Christ. Let's pray.